Hello and welcome to the Shiny Bees podcast, a podcast for those who like their knitting, comedy and yarn in equally large measures. I'm your host Jo Milmine and this is episode 55, The Vintage Shetland Project, an interview with Susan Crawford. Hello everyone and welcome into another episode. I hope you're all fine. Since last time I spoke to you, today is Tuesday the 14th of July. How's it going? How's your summer knitting coming along? Anybody cast on anything new? Any summer tops? Using some linen perhaps? Well, it's all been uh, very exciting over at Shiny HQ. Because I live in Scotland, I've been knitting a super chunky jumper and uh, it's nearly finished. My owls is nearly finished. So I can't wait to show that, uh, share that with you all. Uh, you can watch the nightly uh, progress on Instagram if, if you're at all interested. So today I've got some very exciting content for you. I've got an interview with Susan Crawford. For those of you that are not familiar with Susan, although you will be unless you've been living under a rock. Um, she is a knitwear designer based in the UK who specialises in vintage knitwear in particular. She's authored four books so far, which are stocked worldwide in the V&A Museum in Waterstones, WH Smiths, you name it. Um, she's stocked there and uh, she's very kindly agreed to come on to the show and uh, share her story with us and uh, have a bit of a natter. So I hope you will really enjoy that. It was a brilliant interview. I really enjoyed it myself. And I think there's plenty of value um, to be gained in there for people who are thinking of getting into the industry. And also, it's a great story. She's a fantastic storyteller. And uh, her, her backstory in particular resonated with me a lot as uh, someone whose granny taught her everything she knows about needlecraft and, and pretty much life in general, to be quite honest. So I am really looking forward to that. Um, one bit of news quickly for you before we crack into uh, the interview, and it's a favour. I need a favour from you all, please. And I don't ask for favours often. I never ask for favours, really. Um, but this one is a favour, and I would really, really appreciate it if you are able to help me out. I don't want any money. I just want a click of your mouse, please. And uh, the podcast has been nominated for a UK Podcasters Award and the nominations are running currently and it's already halfway through the month. So all the other podcasts that have been nominated have got a head start on me, which is why I really, really need your help and the help of anyone else that you can get to uh, to click and vote for me and the podcast. And um, essentially it's a new set of awards that are going to be awarded in September and the podcast has been nominated and I would really, really appreciate your support on this because one of the criteria for it is um, how engaged your community is. And I know how engaged you guys are because you are lovely. You send me messages, you send me emails, you talk to me on Twitter, you watch me open boxes of stash on Periscope. And I am very lucky to be in that situation where I can put out this podcast to entertain you all and you all give me so much back in return. And I would really like to celebrate that by, um, by getting a podcast award really. So um, I've made it really easy for you. I will share it around on social as well, but the URL, I've put a link to it through my website so you can find it because obviously you know the address for that. 
but the address you are looking for is www.shinybees.com forward slash podcast forward slash UK hyphen podcasters hyphen awards. Now, if you can't remember all of that, um, if you go to my homepage in the top bar of the menu, there's a separate little um, button for UK podcasters awards. Click on that, click on the graphic and it'll take you straight to the page you need to go to. Put your details in. Um, you've got to put your email in so they can confirm it's you so no one's cheating by basically um, putting the same email in over and over again. It's like a double opt-in, you have to confirm it. Um, so it's more than one click, it's two. That's a bit cheeky, it's two clicks. Um, and um, and that, that way you'll be able to support me and the podcast in this award ceremony. Spread it as far as you can, send it to your friends, ask your mates on Facebook because um, I would really, really appreciate um, your help on this one. And um, you can vote once per day per podcast, but you're not going to vote for any more. You're just going to vote for mine. And um, if you could vote every day from now until the 31st of July, I would absolutely love you. In fact, if you vote every day from now till the 31st of July, send me a message and I'll do a giveaway of a random skein of yarn in my stash. And that's probably technically bribery, I guess, but but I don't care. And I would really, really appreciate your help. So, uh so that is um, the UK Podcasters Awards and uh, the URL is www.shinybees.com forward slash podcast forward slash UK hyphen podcasters hyphen awards. Thank you. So I think we better go on to the interview. Get yourselves a cup of tea and um, get yourself some knitting and um, sit back and enjoy this one. It's been one of my favourite interviews so far. I wouldn't like to pick a favourite between this one and Kate Davies. Uh, but she's certainly knocked Stephen West into the long grass. So um, without further ado, let me present to you the wonderful Susan Crawford. So I am thrilled to welcome onto the podcast today, Susan Crawford, vintage knitwear queen and writer of a new book that hopefully she's going to talk to us all about today. So welcome to the show, uh, Susan. Hello, lovely to see you. Lovely to have you on the show too. It's been a quite an exciting weekend for you. It has, yes, very much so. Yes, we launched our crowdfunder appeal for the new book, Vintage Shetland, and it's, uh, yeah, it's going very well, been very well received, and it's uh, been a very exciting few days watching the, watching the clock tick over. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've, I have to admit, I have been... Uh playing refresh a little bit as well to see uh, how how the um, crowdfund has been going on because obviously this isn't your first book you've written four books already and you have a really distinctive style I think and anyone goes to a show they can see your stand for miles away because it is is a completely different look to a lot of uh, other stalls. So can you tell us a little bit about you as a person and your background and also about how you came to be interested in yarning pursuits? Right, um, oh, for me it's quite it's quite a big question in a way. I can't remember when I first started knitting. I must have started when I was about four or five. Likewise, I started sewing crochet and embroidering all around the same time and that was all due to um, my grandmother's my Ruby Nan as I called her and my Betty Nan. Ruby Nan in particular was 
just amazing at everything to do with handicraft. She was actually a seamstress and used to make um, ballroom gowns for people and used to hand sew on sequins and do embroidery and all those amazing things and would spend hundreds and hundreds of hours on everything that she, she did. During the Second World War, her and my mum, my mum was born in 1939, so she was literally a, a war baby, really. My nan was on her own. My granddad was off overseas for basically the entire five years. And nan used to make old clothes, make clothes out of old curtains, out of tablecloths. She would make necklaces out of seeds she'd taken from fruit and dried and then painted them. And she was the, she was the ultimate make, do and mend um, person. And I used to spend so much time with her. Every summer I would be with them. Every weekend I would want to be with them, even if I couldn't be. And we never, we never really bought things. The whole sort of ethos of childhood spent with my grandparents was was that if if my doll needed a new dress, the box would come out and we would start looking for fabric or wool to make that dress. If I needed a new well for my little toy farm, we would get cardboard out, we would get paper out and so on, and we would make a little three-dimensional well. So I've always made things from as, you know, as long as I can remember. And Ruby is really why I call the blog, just call me Ruby, because it's it's my homage to my nan, who I don't think I would be the person I I am if I hadn't have had Ruby Nan around. Mum knitted, but mum, mum needed to knit. So she was still at the stage in life where she was furnishing me and my brother with sweaters for school and all the necessities rather than doing it for pleasure. Whereas Nan had got to the point in life where she was able to spend the entire weekend knitting Teddy a cardigan with me. So she was the one who got my appreciation should I say but I was surrounded by knitting everywhere both both nans knitted mum knitted we were always swathed in uh, unfortunately quite unpleasant acrylic cardigans <laughs> and jumpers but but they were hand knitted so I I never knew a world that wasn't surrounded by things that family had made us um, so basically, I suppose I've always been interested in yarny pursuits, but didn't even understand that I was until much, much older. I hated needlework at school, hated home economics, domestic science, whatever you want to call it, and with an absolute vengeance and rejected it for several years. And it was only when I left school and didn't have to do it, that I started doing it again. And I used to make myself things to wear at um, indie nights and things like that. Every weekend, I would go out Saturday morning, buy fabric, buy wool, use great big needles and make big sloppy things, make skirts out of um, furnishing fabric, all sorts of things to dress myself as I thought absolutely incredibly. I dread to think where I actually looked at, but I thought I looked great. So... Yeah, that was really when I got started and I began to collect vintage knitting patterns and vintage sewing patterns. 
and I think basically that's it. It's never ever stopped. I've always done it and never known a time after that when I haven't done it. Oh, that's amazing. Did did you get matching cardigans with your brother? No, we didn't actually. No, we never got matching anything. No, I think we would have killed each other if we'd have had matching things. We were quite competitive as children. So <laughs> we didn't, we would, no, we didn't do looking the same. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> oh, I, my, my granny, um, she was a knitter as well. And we used to get matching acrylic jumpers. And we had a, a very, I've got a very, very clear memory of having matching cream sort of iron acrylic you know cabled jumpers but i had had pink cerise pink trim on mine and obviously he had blue because he's a boy yeah and we had these matching jumpers uh yeah classic classic 80s uh, knitwear was brilliant yeah (laughs) my brother was always in blue definitely i was in a multitude of colors usually to be honest with you i wouldn't have said i was I can't remember particularly always being dressed in pink. I wore red a lot. So I had a lot of red jumpers. Um, and I can't remember any other colours. Red, red really stands in my head if I try and think about it. And yellow. The first time I knew I hated synthetic fibres and I didn't know it was because they were synthetic at that point. I was a bridesmaid at my auntie's wedding and I was in a synthetic lace dress. <laughs> That made me sweat and itch and it prickled me from head to foot. And there was something at that point as a young child, I knew I didn't like the feel of this thing that was that was on me. And I think it was from then that I started building up a, a, a desire to get natural fibres, really. So when mum used to make me cotton dresses and things like that, I was always happiest when she was when she was doing me those rather than some other strange concoction that she'd find somewhere and, and make me. So yeah, it started, yeah, it all started quite early really, an appreciation of it, but without the without the knowledge of what it was I was appreciating or why. Oh brilliant. So you trained as a teacher as well? I did, yeah. So what was the tipping point that turned what was a, almost a lifetime hobby or a way of life, really, into a full-time business? Well, I never really wanted it to be a hobby. I actually, um, I trained as a fashion, I did fashion and textiles as a qualification, but was unable to find a way into the industry other than by doing dressmaking for people and things like that on the side. So I I ended up doing administrative and boring jobs just to make ends meet whilst doing these other things as a sideline. But it was always my goal from quite early on in life to in some way be involved in fashion, clothing, craft, whatever you want to call it. I wanted to be part of it but in the early 90s it was actually very very difficult to get independent work you had Sirdar you had Peyton's you had Wendy from a magazine point of view you had Woman's Weekly um, and there was Rowan and really within the UK there was very little opportunity to to do freelance knitwear design 
there certainly wasn't the internet and the ability to sell PDF patterns. I mean, it sounds so recent to me, the early 90s, but actually it was a completely different world. In 1992, when my daughter was born, it was almost impossible to put out a pattern and sell it online. It just wasn't happening. So I had to find other ways to, to be employed, I guess. Um, I used to teach classes independently, knitting, sewing, etc., um, for various places. And I worked for Rowan for several years as well. And at the same time, I did my teacher training and I got um, began to work at my local art college teaching fashion, textiles, art and design and so on. But that was actually, that was after my daughter was born. So what does a typical day look like for you now? Because you're not just a knitwear designer. Not not just, not just is just as a bad word, but knitting design isn't your only occupation, is it? No. I showed this um this question to my husband last night and he laughed for quite a long time. Um, <laughs> we there is no typical day. About the only consistent thing is is that of a morning we have we we have animals to deal with. So of a morning it involves feeding the chickens, feeding the ducks, letting the goats out, checking the sheep, um, feeding the cat, obviously, um, and that takes up quite a chunk of the morning. So you, you, we we start with all the animal husbandry jobs. We since we've lived here on the farm we've had to respond more to how the weather is working as well so if you know during a week you've got some outdoor outdoor jobs to do on the farm and you've got administrative tasks to do in the office you sort of juggle it about to fit the weather because if you miss the weather when you've got grass to cut or you've got the sheep to shear you could be wait, waiting another week before you can get back to that job. So it's very much, um, there's forward planning in as much as we might have an overview list of what we want to do. But from a day-to-day -day basis, every day can be dramatically different from the day before. And every day can have a morning and an afternoon that are completely different as well. I mean, last night we were shearing the sheep till half past ten last night because that's just how it fitted in with with our with our tasks as it was. So, yeah, no, there is no such thing as a typical day, basically, in answer to your question, other than the animals always have to be looked after. <laughs> that's brilliant. I saw you tweet this morning that said you've developed some new aches in places you didn't know oh, you yes. could ache. <laughs> Well, we've got four warbles, which I don't know whether you know them, but they're, they're, they're very tall, elegant sheep, lovely things, but they grow an enormous amount of wool, incredible, dense, thick, black, beautiful wool. So when they're needing to be sheared, they're, they're relatively slow because they've got this enormous bundle wrapped around them. But once you take it off, they become extremely fast and <laughs> extremely sprightly. And they were quite determined last night that they were going to eat my buddleia. Um, <laughs> and we had, yes, we had a bit of a contest over who was going to win that one. Um, but they just kept running. Yeah, they were 
enjoying the freedom of not having all this fleece on last night. So it was it was a bit of a challenge to get them to behave themselves, basically. <laughs> I can imagine. I've got this really funny visual going on in my head right now because I've watched sheep shearing before and um, they are quite lively little things, especially when they get them in that little sort of pet. They get them into a straight line, like a trailer, and so they can kind of get one at a time and then shear them and they're not all moving around. But some of them sort of jump over the top and the sheep guy's trying to catch them. and Oh, yes. And that's even with wool on. I can't imagine when they take them off and they're sort of like... Must be like Christmas running around. Well, yeah, and Zwarbel, I mean, Zwarbels are bred to have very long legs because in in the Netherlands where they're from, they are actually bred to be milk sheep. So they need long legs so that they can be milked. Yeah. So they are really tall, and you forget how tall they are, but they are also very very strong. They're lean and muscular, be beautiful, beautiful animals. But yeah, they are powerful and fast, and agile and tall. And they can give you a run for your money if you're trying to trying to stop them get somewhere. You you've got to you've got to get yeah you've got to run quite fast to outrun them basically. So, and I'm not a runner, <laughs> so I, I am slightly achy today. Yes, it's got to be said. Oh, that's brilliant! I think next time maybe you should film it and put it to some Benny Hill music. That'd be quite funny. Mm, yes, maybe not. <laughs> So taking it from the sheep back to the wool and your designing, um, can you tell us a bit about your creative process when you develop a new design or a new colourway? This this question really intrigued me actually because I, I have been asked similar questions before of course and a lot of designers I know have a, a way that they usually design and I've realised that over the years that has altered with me and sometimes I'll design something from one angle and then other way, other days, I'll come at it from a completely different angle and it intrigued me that I don't have this one um, specific process. I would say that in the past, um, when I used to do more designs on commission, for example, if I was commissioned to design something, I would usually create a storyboard and I would actually be designing for a person. This person wouldn't actually exist or it, they might do. They might be um, a character in a film or a book or um, they might be some famous person from the past. And I would create around that story that I would create and I would design clothes accessories or whatever that I felt related to this character. I used to use um I used Faye Dunaway out in Bonnie and Clyde a lot as my inspiration and I used to use Jessica Lang in The Postman Always Rings twice as an inspiration and things like that. I would have people who I often came back to as my sort of well if they looked good in that that that's how I want it to look. Um, but I've realised that over recent years that has that has changed quite a lot, and it comes from a much more sort of, um, I don't know, instinctive place. Maybe I, it hard to quite say in a way. I think since I've had my own yarn ranges, it, it the creative process has often started with the fibre rather than the story. 
it's sort of now coming from from the opposite direction where now I will start wanting to experiment with a yarn or with a colour and that will lead me into a design that I think shows off that yarn or shows off that colour. Obviously, when doing things like the Stitching Time books and again with the Vintage Shetland books, they are they are actually in many ways quite restrictive, I guess, because you are having to the goal is to recreate as closely as possible to what already exists rather than your own creative input. So it's a, it's a completely different way of approaching it. And when you've worked on a project, say like um, when I finished off Stitching Time Volume 2, I was desperate to create something from scratch because for about two years I had focused on recreation rather than creation if you get what I mean so maybe that's why I've started being much more organic in in the creative process because I need that freedom to just experiment completely because a lot of the time I actually spend analyzing and understanding something that already exists and I'm trying to recreate it Certainly with the Vintage Shetland project that I've been working on these last few years, I am trying to exactly replicate articles that are in a museum. So that really doesn't allow very much creative process at all to, in, in some ways. It's very much you have got to find a way to reproduce something that is already in existence. What has been lovely within that is creating the Fenella range of yarns because all the colours in there I have picked from garments in the Shetland Museum and I've had a wonderful time with the dyers who I met up in the borders of Scotland um, getting the colours to look exactly like the colours in those vintage garments. So that, that's been a really, really nice experience and I, I absolutely love creating colours. I think I almost like creating colours more than I like creating knitwear, which is <laughs> quite quite surprises me to say that in a way. But I've just I just I've so so enjoyed the process of of both initially creating the colour range for Exalana and then even more so creating the colour range for for Fenella. So yeah, it's a really 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 lovely, interesting experience trying to. You almost feel like a scientist just trying to get it just, you know, oh, that's a little bit grey, that's a little bit blue, it's a little bit red. you just got to get it exactly how you how you want it. No, it sounds really interesting. And the, um, the Vintage Shetland project is something that's really captivated kind of my imagination in terms of, you know, the, the kind of disconnect between the production knitters and then the people who've been knitting these the, and designing these garments for their own use rather than being a Shetland knitwear kind of production, making money process and all the sort of social history and everything that goes into that. What's been the most exciting discovery you've made during the project, would you say? Oh, it's an interesting question, really. I think probably, I don't know whether exciting's quite the right word but what's been the most exhilarating thing I think that I discovered as I was 
as I was analysing them and deciding which garments to use and looking at them closer and closer, I realised that the ones that I was being drawn to all had something about them that was imperfect. They'd been, some of them had been darned, some of them have been altered, some of them have actually got mistakes in the knitting, so you can see sort of how somebody's knitting has improved as the garment has, has proceeded. Some of them have used different shades of red for the same motif, and you realise that people have been using up their, their, their odds and ends to make this rather than, than buying wool. Some of them, when you turn them inside out, the construction is not what you expect whatsoever because somebody has obviously been experimenting and trying to learn how to how to make a shape um, there's some really interesting anomalies shall we say on the inside of some of the 40s garments where they've tried to create setting sleeves and puffed sleeves and things like that um, some of them have been so worn out that bits of them have just been chopped off and they've turned long sleeve garments into short sleeved garments and I think I think that's been the discovery this thing that actually every single one that I have wanted to to focus on is not what you would think of as this beautiful perfect piece of knitting but the story is in the imperfection tells you so much more about each garment because there is something in it that leads you somewhere else into the life and creation of that of that piece. Do you think that's maybe just thinking about the story that you've told us so far and about Ruby Nan and always making your own things do you think that your start in life and the way that you grew up and everything you understood played a part in being attracted to those particular garments or was it just something else entirely? Oh, I don't know. That's not something I'd ever... Maybe it is, maybe it is, but maybe... Oh, I think in some ways it's... When, you, when you're looking at an awful lot of garments all together, you are looking for the ones that shout out to you that say something different. And I think I think that was probably subconsciously the driving force. But I do like things that have been mended, altered, adjusted, made bigger, made smaller, because it does show an aptitude and a creativity, as you say, that goes beyond even just the construction in the first place and maybe it is that ability that Nan had that I have looked for it I don't know I'd, I'd not thought of that that's quite interesting I shall I shall have to think of that more actually I don't I don't know it just came to me when you were talking about it and obviously having told that story it just sort of I could draw similarities between them and thought I wondered whether that was that was why maybe that those particular garments have caught your interest. Yeah, yeah, it, it might be. Never know, maybe one for a bottle of wine, that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so talking about imperfections then and, tr you know, trial and error and learning new things, um, 
running a business has its ups and downs and not everything goes to plan most of the time let's be honest can you think about um a time where things maybe haven't quite gone to plan what happened and what you learned as a result of it right well i would say in the 20 years or nearly 20 years doing this probably more things have gone wrong than have gone right <laughs> um but i would think the one that really really hit home and really made me really made me understand that I, that what i was doing was a business that i had to get my head around it was when we released stitching time volume two for the first time and I'd taken pre-orders and I hadn't worked out the costing for the postage and I hadn't charged anything like as much as the postage was actually going to cost. And I think we ended up spending as much on postage as we'd actually received in pre-orders. And that taught me a very, very, very valuable lesson that you need to work out your costs before you decide how much something is going to sell for. Yeah, definitely. It's really important. Um, and in the last interview, we were also talking about making sure that you have your financials nailed down. <laughs> yes. I think because we're in a creative, well, we, we consider ourselves in a creative um, area, maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes we're a bit reluctant to to acknowledge that we need to also be practical and sensible over over the money side it's something that we don't really want to think about maybe um and i think that's a big big mistake it really is say it's it over the years i have realized how i have approached it purely from one direction and not from the other and to run a business of any type be it a creative enterprise or a non-creative enterprise you have to think of all the different bits and if you want to do this for a living you have to be in charge of the the monetary side as well as the creative side yeah absolutely but then, you know, finances is, is a part of life, isn't it? And I think sometimes we get quite excited about something and we know people will love it and we just want to get it out there for people and it's very easy to get swept up. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm probably more guilty of that than anybody, to be honest with you, because certainly none of neither of the Stitching Time books or the Vintage Shetland project ever set out in any way to be commercial. Um, that's It's not what comes into my head at all when I set about doing a, a, a project of this size. I mean, volume one took two years to write, volume two took three years to write. Vintage Shetland is up to now took, taken over four years to write. So they're, they're not really what you would consider to be commercial projects, but it's trying to find a way I suppose of of making them viable and still being able to do them because and um, you could not approach a publishing house with something like stitching time books or vintage shetland project and expect them to support it when you know it's going to take years and years of work and potentially you know cost so much to produce so 
whilst I'm saying you have to be in charge of the monetary side of things, I think what for me has been a real challenge is finding a way of making what basically aren't commercial projects somehow work for me so that I can still I can still do them because I think this side of knitting history is really, really important. It's also women's history, it's social history, it's you know, it's it's intertwined with everyday life and it's a story that needs to be told. So I, I really I really feel it's important to be able to to do what I do. But I say at the same time, I know that re- if I'm realistic, I know I can't I can't do it any other way than the way that I'm doing it, which is not the most financially sensible. No, and I completely agree with, you know, your comments on getting a publisher to publish it, because when you look at commercial books, I always feel like you're kind of left wanting a little bit more and you kind of, there's this promise of this amazing book and you open it and sometimes you think, yeah, you've not really delivered on the promise there. And I have to say with your books, you never, ever get that feeling. When you pick it up, it is... You feel like you've got something and it's like a bit of a guilty pleasure because it's this beautiful hardback book and there is, you know, there's page upon page upon page of designs and history and effort and work that goes into it. Um, But again, you're absolutely right in that we wouldn't have these books if you just did it as a labour of love and didn't want to eat you know that would be fine but we wouldn't get any more of the books so no <laughs> I'm kind of like yeah it's, it's really it must be really difficult to have that kind of passion for this and that interest and want to share it with everyone but yet also make it so that you, it is viable and you can carry on doing it and doing this research and recording this this social history yeah I mean I'm, I'm by far I'm not the only person who's who's you know who's trying to make this balance work um but it is interesting that people have gone out there and found their own models, really, that are at, that is outside the traditional publishing method, really. You know, you've got a lot of people who are bringing history into, into knitting and doing research and producing essays and background material that is adding extra value to what they're creating. But most of this is being done outside what would be considered the traditional publishing arena yeah absolutely but then that's the value that our sort of indie designers and uh, and dyers bring to the party really is getting that different point of view yes definitely it is i mean there's 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 room for all different types of of creativity but it is interesting that there is this wonderful seam of people who are interested in history and events and how they link with with knitting that is you know making this really powerful uh, body of work really that will be there for a long long time that people will be able to draw on in years to come yeah absolutely so taking it from maybe when things weren't going to plan and turning it on its head what's been that i can guess but what's been the high point of your journey so far? Well, actually, I don't know. You might think you can guess, but I I think it's a slightly more complicated. Um, I've been very, very lucky, and I have actually had what I would consider several high points, for me, anyway, personally, that 
I would say they have been high points. And when they have happened, they have felt the highest point. Um, you know, actually getting the first the first ever copy of a Stitch in Time volume one out when I'd never been published before and no one knew anything about me. And we did it ourselves and we bought a book binding machine and we printed them off on our own printing press and bound it of a night time and then sent it out the next morning. That at that point was such a such a momentous moment and such a change in where my career had been going up to that point. So that was, you know, that in some ways that that that's hard to beat. Um when I then found out that both Stitching Time One and Two were being sold in the VA museum shop at that moment, that was that had sort of been like it that was a dream from 17, 18 years of age to be, you know, represented in any way in the VA. So even though it was only in their shop, to have my book in their shop was just, oh my God. But then of course, since then, um this last month has been quite 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 phenomenal but there was there was actually something that happened just before we launched the crowdfunder that is also one of the high points to be honest with you I I've been working with the Harris Museum in Preston to create to recreate my husband's great uncle's cardigan that he wore in World War One and we've got photos of him wearing them. And unfortunately, he died at um, Passchendaele in 1917, um, about, well, just trying to work out, 98 years ago. Um, and they have actually done an entire cabinet devoted to his story because he was one of the Lancashire loyals who were based in Preston. And I've recreated the cardigan and that cardigan is now on display in the museum. Um, along with two other pieces of my work and it will they will be there for a year and they will be telling people his story for for a whole year so that in itself was just it's quite mind-blowing to be honest with you the idea that my work can be in a museum and can be considered that you know significant that it could be in a museum and it was wonderful to actually see that I'm I'm actually listed as as a co-curator of the exhibition, and and at 18 years old doing fashion and textiles. If someone had told me that I would get to do that, I would never have. I just would not have thought that was even a possibility. So, always, always think never, never, never doubt that you can achieve your dreams. They they will happen. And then obviously straight after that, we went into the the crowdfunder for Vintage Shetland and I was absolutely terrified about doing the crowdfunder. It's something that I was petrified of doing because I thought three people would donate, well not donate, would fund and I would get about £6.50 and I wouldn't know where to go with the Vintage Shetland project after that. And actually, we launched the campaign, um, a 30-day campaign using a publishing platform called Pub Slush. 
and you launch the pro you you launch a project for 30 days and you promote it and so on and unbelievably after 48 hours we had reached our target so i think yeah that's probably the one you're expecting me to be the the highlight and actually yes it is it was just such an unbelievable um thing to see happen that i don't think i've even pro quite processed it yet it's it's just phenomenal that people have got behind us and supporting it and believing it and want to see it um published and it's just absolutely wonderful because sometimes you can do these things and you do you get lost in your own little bubble of research and analysis and writing the text and writing the programs and writing the patterns and you think well yeah may, may, maybe a few people will be interested but when once you put it out there to actually get the amount of support that I've had and the wonderful messages I've had from people about it and how excited they are and how how behind the how behind me they are on it it's really given me a a, a new a new zest to get on with it and to get it completed and to just make it even better than it was going to be anyway and the knitting the, the world of knitters is an absolutely incredible place the support that we get is is phenomenal it really is and i think we're very very lucky to have that sort of community of people behind us who 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 recognize something worth supporting and go out there and and do so yeah absolutely in fact aren't you off to Shetland next week to do some more photos and um, I'm going this week yes this week. yes <laughs> of course it's this week now <laughs> yes yeah yeah I've and um, I'm going back up on Thursday yeah it's only a flying visit to get a few things organized um for the main photo shoot but yes uh, I go up on Thursday and come back on Sunday but uh, I've got some research to do. I've got some planning to do. I've got some photos, hopefully, to take. But really, we're at this stage. We are planning the main photo shoot, which will be taking place on an island off, off Shetland, um, and it will be absolutely phenomenal. I can't wait to do the big photo shoot. It will be a lot of organisation, but it will hopefully really reflect what we're trying to show in the book. The beauty and the majesty of Shetland and how it's influenced the designs that have been created. Oh, it sounds really exciting. I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit jealous. Although I bet it's colder there than even it is in Elgin. <laughs> and it, possibly, yes. There'll be horizontal rain, no doubt. There usually is. But, oh. but we get that in Lancashire as well. So Absolutely. Love a bit I'm of rain. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so... Taking it then in a slightly different direction and back to the yarn, which one thing that you know now that you wish you'd known when you picked up the first ball of yarn? That that one really flummoxed me, really, when I started thinking about that. Um, but the more I thought about it, I think the thing that I wish that I'd known when I picked it up was that if you... If you want to be something, believe in yourself that you can do it. And from the moment I started making things, I knew that that was who I was, not just what I wanted to do, but it was it is who I am. I can't. Somebody asked me the other day, well, if you stopped doing this, what would you do? And I thought, 
there is nothing else other than looking after my sheep and my, my polytunnel that I want to do because this isn't just what I do. This is what I am. And that that first experience, that first ball of wool and needles somehow spoke to me inside and it and it is what I am. I cannot be anything else. And I just wish when you're young and you start doing these things and you think, well, this isn't what you can actually do. You can't be this. This is just something that you do to pass the time when you're doing the the, the proper things. I, I I wish that I'd have known back then that actually it is what you can be. It is what you can do. And you should have belief and confidence in yourself to go out there and be it. It's a really powerful uh, message. And I guess it's a mindset thing as well in that, you know, if you don't believe it and work towards it, it it's never happening. No, exactly. You, you do have to believe it. So taking it one step further then, uh, Desert Islands games. If you were going to be marooned on a desert island and could only take one skein or ball of yarn, what would you take and why? Well, I'm going to be very, very cheeky over this. I would take um, the finest lace weight with the biggest, longest meterage I could get my hands on so it would last me ages. <laughs> you know, Kate Davies said that and then she said oh, she's she... like, under a palm tree and getting herself some lacy undergarments. Yes, well, you Lancaster, you Lancastrians, I wouldn't take lace weight. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, you see, we we we're also we're also thrifty. You see, that's what it <laughs> what it is. You know, thousand meters will go a long, long way. I can make a hammock for a start. I could make a bag to carry fruit around if I have to go and collect it, and I would still have enough left over to make undergarments or a dress, socks, you name it, and I can layer. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you see, layering's important. Especially it is. Especially island. Yeah. Maybe you should apply for the island. No. <laughs> I'd be too hungry. <laughs> no, no. Doesn't interest me. There are other people on that programme. There's one thing about a desert island when you're on your own. It's completely different when you've got to be on an island full of people. It completely, completely negates it, doesn't it, really? <laughs> Yeah, for the um, US viewers who might not know about it, the island is like a reality TV show where they dump sort of 12 people on a desert island for six weeks and then watch them fight, essentially. Yes. No. Oh, it's all I good. Would, I would just try and find a cave and not talk to anybody for, for the entire period. No. Oh, it's all good. Um, so what's your favourite or, or your go-to resource for yarn craft um, or business um, that you couldn't do without right well I don't know whether this is what you're looking for but my answer to that is my bookshelf because I have everything on there that I can possibly need except more shelves <laughs> that's always the way isn't it <laughs> do you have a favorite book I have a whole raft of books that I dip into on a regular basis some predictable, I suppose, like your, your Mary Thomas and your Barbara Walker and your Elizabeth Zimmerman and your Monty Stanley type things. But then lots of other things. I adore the Odoms books. I've got every Odoms book imaginable. Um, just looking back, 
what else do I look at regularly? There's an amazing woman called Flora Clickman that nobody else seems to have heard of who wrote books at the turn of the 20th century about knitting and crochet. And I've got a lot of hers and hers are really inspirational. She created stitches and all sorts of intriguing things, wrote her own abbreviation system. Really, really fascinating. Um, and lots of sort of books from the 70s, really. I've got, and the 80s, I've got a lot of Sarah Don books and um, Sheila McGregor books and people like that who I go to time and again, really, for a lot of information. So I'd say they are probably my key ones. And I look back on the Stitching Time books as well because they're very useful. Will there be a Stitching Time 3? Putting you on the spot there. I don't think so. I'll be honest with you, I don't think so. Sad though that might sound, I have a lot of other projects that have waited a long time that I would like to work on before I did a volume three. So bearing in mind that every year we apparently get older, um, I, I don't think I'll get to volume three based on how long it takes me to complete anything that I do, um, I, I can't see it happening, I'm afraid. Who knows, I might be wrong, but it, it's not on the agenda at the moment. Well, that's exciting because it means that other things are, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of other things that I want to do in between. So, yeah, the, they're just... They are completely and utterly overwhelming in the amount of work that they require. And you you know, you have to have two to three years of your life just put to one side to be able to focus on them. And they've been my life since 2007 to, well, I did a rewrite of volume one last year. So really they've been, you know, eight, eight nine years of my life really has been involved in the, the creation and maintenance and updating of them. So, no, I need, I need to move on, if only for a while. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not a light undertaking, I guess. So I guess you have to be in the right headspace to sort of attempt even thinking about it. So Yeah, I mean, I've got so many. I mean, I, I, I have an enormous archive of patterns and magazines and books which I really want to explore and do more about but whether they come in a different way than the Stitching Time books is yet to be seen. I've got some thoughts of things that I'd like to do but at the moment they are only thoughts so you'll have to watch this this space really. Oh it sounds exciting, it definitely sounds exciting. Um, so Where's the best place for people to find you? Um, on the farm, but no, <laughs> um, on online, the, there are two places where you can find, well, you can find me in several places, but you can find me on my website, which is just susancrawfordvintage.com. I also blog semi-regularly on justcallmeruby.blogspot.com. And on a day-to-day -day basis, I use Twitter, Facebook, and particularly Instagram, which I absolutely love Instagram. And on there, I am Susan Crawford Vintage. 
on Instagram, I am a stitch in time. And on Facebook, I have no idea. I think I am Susan Crawford number, blah, 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 blah. But I'm sure if you search Susan Crawford, it, it comes up ultimately. I'm quite new to Facebook. I've only been using Facebook for about the last year, which is quite ridiculous. I, I realise that, but I'm, I'm finding my way around. I'm getting better at it. I guess you don't need it if you've got Ralph already, do you? Let's be honest. <laughs> it's, I, I quite like it. It's funny. You do get different, you, you meet different people on different on different social media, which is nice. Yeah, definitely. You do, you have a Ravelry group as well though, don't you? Oh yes, I do have a Ravelry group as well, yes. That, that's that got a really long name because of the way it's evolved over the years. And it's, but if you search Susan Crawford, you will, or A Stitch in Time, or just call me Ruby, I think any one of those things will find the group. And it's A Stitch in Time, Susan Crawford Vintage is its name, just a bit long-winded, but. That's sort of where it's ended up at the at, at the moment. But it's a very nice group. We've got a lot of nice ladies who all offer help and advice to each other. And we very, very rarely have the disagree button ever used. So it's a it's a pleasant it's a pleasant group. It's lovely. Oh, that's good. I'll put all the links in the show notes. I've disabled my disagree button because it, it gave me rage. So I just yes. disabled it completely. <laughs> well, I think I've only ever had about two disagrees in in several years. So we must we must keep everything very, very pleasant. Oh, I don't know. No one ever seen. I don't know if anyone disagrees with me, obviously, because I don't have it on. But like you'd see a post, not on your group, but in general, just saying, oh, it's a beautiful sunny day. And there'd be like three disagrees on it. Like, oh, dear. What what that that button is gone now. So I don't I don't know if anyone disagrees. No, there's no there's no room in your life for that. Exactly, I don't care. So, <laughs> if you don't like it, then um, then just go. That is my <laughs> attitude. There's plenty of space for everyone on Ravelry and stuff you do like. Um, your group is lovely. I do like your group. Thank you. Um, so I'll put links to all of that in the show notes so that people can find them all. Um, easily and quickly you talked earlier about um sort of having a bit of self-belief and just going for it and uh following what you you want to achieve do you have any parting words of advice for those who would like to get into the industry yeah i do because it, it's one of those things obviously you get you get to a certain point in your career where people do tend to ask you that advice quite a lot where you get people who come to a stand at a show and say they want to be a designer or you know they want to write a book and things like that so it is one of those things that I do try and think of of something sensible and useful to to say to people but it, it's not easy to put it just into a few words in a way because it's such a you know it's such a huge thing to be considering doing but I suppose I would say definitely believe in yourself, but without question, have your own identity. Find out who you are and what you want to do. Do not try and follow the flow. Don't try and second guess what is fashionable at the moment and try and fit your work to that fashion. You will always be playing catch up if you try and do that. You, you, you need to know who you are as a designer or a creative or whatever it is and, and that will shine through and people will start to find you as an individual and your message will then be easy to easier to to tell people 
because you, you you know who you are and people can see who you are um and be in it for the long haul if you want to do this it is not something that you might have one pattern that sells really well the very first time you put it out but for the majority of people who are doing well now they have been here quite a long time and they have worked and worked to get there and don't expect to get rich quick it is not an industry for getting rich it's an industry for enjoying what you do and if you're very lucky you will make some money out of it but you won't ever become a millionaire unless you were Kay Fassett which was a moment in time that I don't think will ever repeat itself so but be yourself absolutely be yourself have your own identity that's probably my most and no that'll do that <laughs> go on to a whole um lecture i think so no that that will do maybe that's a subject for another podcast yeah yeah Definitely. maybe no it's a really good point because it's i don't think anyone sets out to copy anyone else's work or to imitate anyone and everyone's inspired by somebody's work in particular oh, yeah. um but i think if you're not true to yourself and who you are it will show through at some point even if it doesn't show through straight away I think it's not even necessarily whether it shows through or not. I think it's just very, very hard work. If, you, if you're having to second guess, I mean, it's all hard work anyway, but if you're trying to follow trends and second guess, you spend so much time trying to figure out where to go that you're not maybe spending your time on, on a creative process. You're spending time trying to, work out what you should be doing instead of doing what you want to do yeah absolutely so get us all a bit excited then what's next for you what's next for the business what can we be looking forward to over the next few months well first of all primarily it is obviously it is all hands on deck for the vintage shetland project we've got 26 days left on the campaign it would be wonderful if listeners would uh, go to the campaign and support um, the project if they are interested in it. There are still lots of lovely rewards available, but primarily it will be your only way to get a copy of the book this side of Christmas. Um, I've had some very interesting discussions lately about um, the logistics of being of getting the book out and I've had to make the decision that the only way to be sure that the wonderful people who've supported the campaign to this point will get their copy um, before Christmas is that we limit um, how we make the book available at this point. So if you would, if you are interested in Vintage Shetland Project and you want to be one of the first people to get your hands on it, the only way to do it is to go to the, the Pub Slush campaign page, which I'm sure you'll be putting on the on the links so I don't need to go through it but that is definitely the way to do it so for the next few months that is what I'm going to be doing I'm going to be finishing off the research I'm going to be doing the photo shoots which involves obviously finishing off lots of garments sewing buttons on all those sort of things darning in ends cutting open steaks all those jobs that need to be done to create the garments 
um, I will then be finishing off the text, having it all edited, laying it up, producing the book. And um, once that's all over, I will be sitting in a dark room for a while and <laughs> trying to calm myself down. Then we will be promoting the book, obviously, after that point. Um, and then after that, I've got a few other things up my sleeve that I'm going to start working on next year. Um, probably not a major book project at this point, although I have got a couple of little research things that I would like to do on which involve um, Norway and the Faroe Islands, but I'll say no more about them at this point. But that's probably, probably what's next. Exciting. And will you be at Yarndale this year? Oh yes, I will be at Yarndale, yes. Yes, I will have a stand at Yarndale, then I will be immediately getting the plane to Shetland to go up for the last few days of Shetland Wool Week. And I'm doing a trunk show at the museum on the 1st of October for anybody who's going to Shetland Wool Week. Um, I think it's in the afternoon on the Thursday, the 1st of October, when we'll be I'll be revealing some of the garments from the book for the first time. Oh, I'm jealous. Can you share it with us on Instagram? Because I can't come to Shetland more week. Probably, yes. And I'm sure it will get onto Instagram in some in some shape or form. Yes. You're yeah. good to us, Susan. <laughs> You're good to us. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your experience and for telling us about Nana Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure. Okay, cheers. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. No worries. So there you go. Did you enjoy that? I certainly enjoyed that interview. It was great fun. And um, Susan's great fun as well, as you can hear. I absolutely love her unapologetic attitude when it comes to, to achieving things and, you know, a kind of firm embrace of the idea that if you want to do something, then, you know, make it happen. You can do it. You've just kind of got to take steps forward to to achieve that really and be committed to your goals and you know that's what she's done and she's she's on fire at the moment i'm sure you'll agree um if you do want to um pop over and support the pub slush campaign um i have put the links in the show notes for you so if you go to um www.shinybees.com uh, the links will all be in the show notes there for you to go along to that. Or if you go to www.pubslush.com, P-U-B-S-L-U-S-H.com and put in Vintage Shetland Project, you'll find it. I think she's on the homepage anyway at the moment um, with the campaign. And um, as I said, you can get all the extra details and the video and everything um, on there as well. It's a fa fascinating project. It's just really captured my imagination completely the the amount of effort and work that's gone into it and as knitters i think that's something we all really enjoy we embrace and we appreciate not many people appreciate the value of hours of work painstaking stitch by stitch work quite like another knitter does so um go on and have a look at it and you know if Fair Isle's not your thing and Shetland Vintage Knitting's not your thing please do send it on to someone who would enjoy it because um, it's all about getting the word out there and you know the more money that we can kind of help um, Susan raise up front the better she can make the book 
you know, she's um, got plans for extra photography and more trunk shows and more garments. So she can have another trunk show that can can go around in the States for people to look at. So, you know, all of this money will go to really good use because that's, you know, she doesn't do, if you've seen any of her work before, she does not do things by halves. She does things the proper way. She does them to the fullest extent. So things are a real quality item at the end of it. So I can assure you, if you do, if you've never seen her work before and you take the plunge, um, I don't think you will be disappointed because she does produce very high quality work. And I am a fussy person. I'm like Shania. I don't impress easily. Um, but Susan's books are first rate. So I would really recommend um, that you do give it some consideration if, if that's uh, your cup of tea. So I think that's all we've got time for. It's been quite a long one, but one I hope you will have enjoyed listening to as much as I've enjoyed recording. And I loved editing it back. I think Susan's fantastic. Um, she's great fun to be around. I'd love to go on the lash with her. So I'm sure it'll happen at some point. And um, I wish you will all have a great week. Happy crafting. And I'll speak to you all again soon. Bye. You've been listening to the Shiny Bees podcast, a podcast for those who like their knitting, comedy and yarn in equally large measures. If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can do so via the blog or I'm Shiny Bees on Ravelry, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest and Facebook. You can email me at shinybeesinfo at gmail.com. Music for this episode is provided via Music Alley and it is Adam and the Walter Boys and I Need a Drink. I need a drink.